Today on this edition of the Four City Church Podcast, Chad Brugman has part three of the Less is More Lenten series. His message is titled, Death to Mine. My friends, how you guys doing? Good? I love it. Hey, listen, we're going to jump right in if you guys don't mind, because uh, I was on the phone yesterday and I have a friend in service this morning by the name of Pete. And Pete said, hey, listen, I'm willing to come to the service tomorrow, but Illinois plays at 11. So uh, what kind of sermon are you going to give? I said, I'm going to get you out in time, Pete. I promise that. So Pete, wherever you're at, this message is uh, for you. And I'm going to do my, you guys know I can get a little long winded because I'm passionate. I get fired up and I'm a rabbit trail guy and I go on rabbit trails. So, but Pete, this is for you. Fighting Illini matters to God. And so we're going to make this, we're going to make this happen. You guys good with that? Hey, do you guys mind if I do this first? This brings so much confidence and comfort to my heart when we all pray together for this message. Uh, Again, we, we don't need another just talk. You can, you can stay at home and watch a TED talk. And it'll be way better than this, right? But we need the power of the Holy Spirit in this place. I don't want to waste anyone's time. I want the power of God to be here. And I just believe that, like we sang, the authority we have, God gives it to us, again, not because we necessarily earn or deserve it. That's not the the point. He gives it to us out of his mercy and his kindness. And I just believe God wants to do some really special healing work in this place, even for some of you that came in and might not even be looking for that or expecting that. Um, we're hearts that are equal parts beauty and broken. And, and I want to talk and speak to some of that brokenness today as we're in week three of this series where we're talking about uh, something very sobering, death, right? As we're preparing for uh, Good Friday and as we're preparing the celebration, and we're going to talk about resurrection for six straight weeks too. So stick with us, y'all. I promise you this is a necessary thing, like Trevor said, that we are uh, focusing on to do. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every single soul that is sitting in this room right now and for everyone that will be listening online and for everyone that will be listening later this week on the podcast, God, I just ask your blessing over them. I ask your kindness over them. I ask God that you would do a healing, beautiful, compassionate work in these next few moments we have together. I pray that your word would come alive. The prophet Isaiah said, every time your word goes forth, it never comes back to heaven without first watering the ground down here. So would you water our hearts? Would you soften the soil of our hearts in these next few minutes, God? We ask this and pray this in the precious and sweet name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So uh, eight or nine years ago now, maybe seven years ago, uh, my wife, did a really brave thing. And and some of you will relate to this. Uh, She went and she saw for the first time in her life uh, a counselor, a therapist. And my wife, and unfortunately, uh, like some of your stories, my wife grew up and had kind of a difficult childhood for a multitude of reasons. And some of it involved abuse. And, and again, for every one of you in here, that that's part of your story, maybe as a child or even as an adult. I, can I just always want to stop and just take time as a church to say, just I'm sorry. No balancing statements, just I'm sorry. And, and so she did a really brave thing and she went to this therapist and, uh, you know, six, seven months in, it was just going amazing. And I was seeing some, some breakthrough in my wife's heart and I was seeing some changes in my wife's heart and I was seeing some freedom in my wife's heart. And I was just so thrilled that she had been brave enough to go and put her story out there with someone that could really have the tools to help her and make some sense of it. And, and it was just going so well. And then when we were almost a year into her first year of uh, going to a therapist, uh, I got bullpinned in. And I did not see that coming because I'm like, I, I didn't abuse her. I'm, I'm pretty good to her, right? Like, I pay some bills for this woman, you know? Like, 
I buy her some things every now and then, you know, like, why am I getting bullpenned in? But I got called in because the therapist and she was doing a beautiful right thing. She's like, you know, it's, it, I think a year in, it's time to start contextualizing some of Rachel's uh, stuff and some of her childhood through, through marriage. Because uh, if you think for those of you who are single and, and have all the great ideals about marriage, just know you're going to take on everything they have as well as what you have. Right. And so she's like, we need to come in and start talking about this through marriage. And, you know, I'm very comfortable in these settings. I grew up with a father for almost five decades now who's been an intensive marriage and family counselor. And so that kind of therapy world is very familiar with me. That language is familiar. I've been a pastor for over 20 years now, and I've sat not giving therapeutic advice because I'm not trained in that, but giving pastoral counsel and advice. So I'm very comfortable in these situations. And so I'm going to be honest with you. When I walked in there, I was secretly, I never would have said it, but I was a bit cocky. I was like, this is good. If she's getting breakthrough with her therapist, now she's going to have her husband and her pastor in the room too. And we're going to, me and the therapist, you know, we'll have synergy. We'll team up on Rachel, you know, and we'll, uh, we'll really get some healing and some breakthrough, you know, but pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall, King Solomon said, right? And so I walk in there and she starts getting some of my story and we're having a good time. And I just start what I thought was waxing eloquent about Rachel. And I'm saying all in my mind, at least all the right things. And, and about 15 minutes into the session, while I'm in mid-sentence, uh, the therapist gets up and she just walks over to a whiteboard. And, and I didn't know what to do. I'm like, do I just keep talking? She's not listening. She turned her back to me and she picks up a, a marker and she's starting to, to write something. You ever have a conversation in your mind while you're having a conversation with somebody like, you know, you do. I do that while I'm preaching, not to freak you out, but I'll have some conversations. I look at y'all out there and I'm having some conversations. So you all just got real insecure. Like, what's he thinking? Like you're checking your, right? And, and so she walks over to the whiteboard and I just keep talking. And in my mind, I'm sitting there going, am I getting whiteboarded by the therapist right now? Because I thought I was doing an incredible job with all the stuff I'm coming up with and all the wonderful pastoral things I'm saying and all the great things I'm saying about my wife. Like, I know the drill here. What's going? I'm getting whiteboarded. And I think she's younger than me. Is that even appropriate? I don't know what's going on here. And as I'm talking, she said, Chad, can I cut you off for a sec? I'm like, please, this is awkward. Cut me off. Say what you got to say. And she says, I say this. I hope you know we're just getting to know each other. I say this with the, the most respect for you. Rachel said so many awesome things about you, and I can tell you're an incredible human being. But I want to interject, and I said, please do. And, and she said, I have a hunch, Chad, that your wife is so dynamic. And I go, I agree. And she is so intuitive. And there is such a wisdom that I've noticed over this last year that your wife has. And then she goes and she writes up here while she's talking to me with her back turned to me, telling me all the great attributes about my wife. She just writes the word A. And then she comes over here and she writes, I said the word A, the letter A. It's school, Chad, go to it. She writes the letter, she writes the letter C. And I'm like, where's she going with this? And I'm trying to, you know, get ahead of the game because we're dudes. That's what we do, right? We want to be in control and in charge, right? And, and she goes, Chad, do you mind if I, I just show you this? She goes, I wrote this, this letter A up here, and this letter A is going to represent the problem. Spelling, Chad. Good Lord. This is not my strength. That's a P right there. The, the, the problem. Okay, letter A represents the problem. You came here. To me, as people do as a therapist, you came because there is a, a, a problem, right? And, and you, you hoped that I could bring this, Chad. And over by C, she wrote, solution. 
right? And, and you, you came here thinking you're paying me for solutions. And I'm like, we're absolutely paying you for solutions. That's why we're here. There's a problem uh, and we want a solution for my wife, some breakthrough, right? She goes, but, but can I just say to you that, that um, I don't really get paid for solutions as a therapist. And then she comes over here and she writes the letter B, She's like, Chad, if this is the problem, and, and, and we definitely have talked for the last year about some of the problems from Rachel, her life, her childhood, and I always believe there's a, a solution somewhere at the end of the rainbow, but here's the deal. So much of the solution and time frame and healing is out of our control, but there is something, Chad, that's in your control, and I think, she said, if you'll, if you'll, if you'll listen to me, she goes, I think this thing right here represents something that is catalytic, catalytic excuse me, to the future solution of whatever Rachel's walking through. And over here, she wrote this two-letter phrase that most of us men in the room have never even really thought about her before. She just wrote, fill it. <laughs> we got a problem. We got a solution, and then there's B. She said, Chad, what if your whole goal as her husband, as her confidant, as her best friend, as her life partner, what if your whole goal was to really focus on this? Because the ultimate thing I'm even here to do, she said, is not to bring a solution because, again, solutions are so much more out of our control and time frame than we would like, right? And I know we're obsessed and love solutions, but what if... What if the most gracious, healing, kind, and compassionate thing you could do for your wife as her best friend and confidant is really learn to just fill what she's sitting in, right? Radical idea. It's this word we have in the English language, and you'll never hear this word explicitly said in the Bible, but when you start to get more and more familiar with the Bible, when you start to read this thing front to back and know it more and more, you will see this word coming out in all kinds of ways all throughout Scripture. It's this word in the English language we use called empathy. This ability to sit in something with people, sit in something with yourself, when things aren't going well, when things aren't great, like we're in this series about death, right? And, and we're talking about uh, sitting in a time period where we are sobered. You heard me quote it in week one a, a couple weeks ago in this series where King Solomon said, it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a party. And remember I said, no, it's not. But then I told you, he didn't say it's more fun. He just said it's, it's better, right? There, there is something so beautiful in life about a human being that has learned the art of this thing called empathy. It doesn't get top billing, even close to top billing when it comes to some of the attributes of what it means to be a Christ follower. And I think that's a shame, because I think one of the greatest things we have as Christ followers to give to this broken and dying world to be a witness to Jesus is, is empathy. Because empathy is cultivated uh, in a human that has heart margin and heart space. It's cultivated in humans that get healthy and whole and healed. And, and I don't know what you came in here believing, but I just, with every ounce of faith in me, believe and have experienced and have tasted and seen from Jesus himself that there is no quicker way to heart margin and heart health and wholeness than the precious blood of Jesus Christ and everything that that entails. Yeah. I've tried a lot of things and there's a whole bunch of other things we can bring in to, to, to move along with that. But at the end of the day, nothing can heal a broken heart and a wounded heart 
and an abused heart more than the blood of Jesus. And as Christ followers, I think we should be some of the most empathetic people on planet earth. And here's why, because we should be walking in a wholeness and an authority that we sang about that comes with our salvation. There should be heart margin for us to be empathetic to others. And another thing I've realized about empathy is like everything else, you can't give to people what you don't give and allow for yourself. I bet nobody is less empathetic with you than you, right? Nobody's talking trash to you more than you all day long. No one's living inside that head of yours, right? Plus then we forget we also have an adversary and you know what the apostle Paul calls him? An accuser. I'm not shocked that we live in a world and in a, in a, in a state right now where there is such a low uh, a tank of empathy right now for each other and just flat out unkindness and an inability to, to fill it with other people because we don't have oftentimes a lot of heart space to fill it for ourselves, but you can never give to people what you don't have yourself. And in a roundabout way, that therapist was kind of saying to me, Chad, the greatest thing you can do for your wife is be healthy yourself because you will never be able to serve her and minister to her and befriend her the way she deserves from her best friend if you yourself don't have the heart space and heart margin to do that. So I just went on uh, six, seven years ago this mission. I am going to learn as a man, we are traditionally men, we don't think about fill it, right? It's the problem and it's the solution. Why? Number one, we're men and I'm not saying you women don't struggle with this, but I'm not you, so I'm not gonna speak for you. I just know uh, us men because I is one of you and, and, and this is not our strength right? It's, hey, if there's a problem, let's get to the solution. That's it. That's, that makes sense to most men, right? It's poor stewardship to fill it when there's a solution out there. Why would we want to sit in the tension of something difficult when we could get to the solution? Plus, again, let's remember the country we were born into. We're capitalists. I love democracy. And we have this financial approach to democracy called capitalism. And for the most part, it's been an incredibly blessed system and it's done very well. But one of the shadow sides to capitalism is this. Time is what? Money. You don't see any Fortune 500 companies with tons of them have the name solutions in their Fortune 500 company titles. I haven't yet to see a Fortune 500 company with fill it on their title right? Because time is money. And it feels like poor stewardship to sit in B when we already know C is possible. It's like, let's just go from A to C as quick as possible. But I'm going to say that Jesus is the same to us as my counselor, uh, Rachel's counselor, was asking me to be to her. It's not poor stewardship in the kingdom of God to sit in something for a while, to fill it, to sit in a death, to sit in a funeral. And when I say death today, I'm not just talking about literal death, although for some of you, that's your story right now. You've had a profound loss of someone's life and you are sitting in, in genuine mourning and sorrow and grief that comes from real death. But all of us in here in some way or another right now, Forest City, we are sitting in some kind of death of something. For some of you, maybe it was a dream. For some of you, maybe it was a relationship, a friendship, a marriage, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. It could have been a lot of different things. There's, there's all kinds of death, deaths that come with mourning. A job for some of you, right? A career for some of you. 
losing a house for some of you, losing a business for some of you. That comes as a death. It comes with, with mourning. And Jesus thought it was so important to sit in things and not just solve things. So if I had a message title today, I would call, I would call it this. More sitting. I spell that all right? I didn't graduate college, y'all. Barely graduated high school. More sitting, and I know this is counterintuitive, less solving. Right? Isn't that counterintuitive? We're capitalists. Time is money. But I'm saying more sitting, less solving. So I want to do this. I want to go to a funeral again. Since we're in this Lent season and we're focusing on death, I want to go to one of the most famous funerals in all of Scripture, and I want to look at the M.O. of Jesus. If you've been in church for very long, you'll be very familiar with this story. It's the story where, uh, spoiler alert, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You guys somewhat familiar with that in here? And, and, and when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out! And after four days of death, he rises from the dead. It's one of the most amazing things. We may even revisit it when we get on the other six weeks of this series, when we start talking about resurrection, because this was one of the beautiful moments in Jesus's life down here where he literally raised someone from the dead. And that part of the story always gets top billing. And listen to me, it should. We're resurrection people. The apostle Paul said, if the resurrection really didn't happen, we should stop having church because it's the whole reason we come here. It's the eternal hope that we have been given, right? Like, like we're resurrection people. So I'm glad that gets top billing, but today it doesn't get top billing. Okay. Today we're going to go to a, a part of the story where the funeral's still taking place. And we're going to sit in that for a little bit. And so I'm just, if you're okay, because it's a longer narrative in scripture, I'm just going to cliff notes for you. Jesus is a couple towns over from Bethany where Lazarus and his sister, uh, Martha and his sister, famously known as Mary, who anointed Jesus's feet. Eric and Carrington talked about this passage in the worship series where Jesus, she anointed Jesus's feet with her perfume, her expensive perfume and her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair. Just this beautiful moment. Uh, Jesus is incredibly, we see it multiple times in the text. Jesus is incredibly close to Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He would have spent a lot of time at their house. He loved them, but he's off a couple towns away ministering. Lazarus, the Bible tells us in John 11, gets sick. And he ends up dying. And so they send some people when he's sick before he's died, say, hey, Jesus is just a couple towns over. Just like a day, a day's journey. Just go and tell him the one you love. Isn't this interesting? The one you love is sick. That's what Mary said to go tell Jesus. Lazarus, the one you love. So there's an intimacy. There is a close friendship that Jesus has with Lazarus. And you know, the closer the friend, the closer you'll drop everything you're doing to go and help them, right? That's just a mark of how close you are to a particular person. So you'd think when Jesus gets this news, he's just going to drop everything and go right to Lazarus and give us this great resurrection miracle. But the Bible says when they went and told Jesus this, it says this, and this is a weird statement to me. It says, because Jesus loved Lazarus, he waited two more days. <laughs> to which I go, I don't think that's what love is, Jesus, right? Like you should like run to that town, drop everything. Nothing's more important than your great friend dying when you have something you can do. But Jesus waits two more days. And here, here's why. In the Jewish customs for now, thousands of years, they believe that after a person stops breathing for good, 
that for the next 72 hours, they believe the spirit is still there and still alive. So the Jewish people are always believing, even if it's been 24 hours, two hours, six hours since someone stopped breathing, which will make you clinically dead, right? They wouldn't do anything with the body. They wouldn't bury it. They wouldn't start mourning. They wouldn't start preparing. They wouldn't do any of that because they always believed in resurrection to some degree. They believed the spirit hadn't left the body yet. And so Jesus gets this news two days into Lazarus' death, and he doesn't get there for another two days. So the 72-hour period is up plus one day, and they're starting the funeral festivities. But there's something Jesus said when Mary and Martha's friends came to tell Jesus about Lazarus that's super important. Go ahead and put this verse up on the screen. In John 11, Jesus looks at them and says, this sickness will not. Everybody say will not. Say it one more time because I want to make sure that we, we don't miss this. G this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Can we agree that when, when the creator of all things says something will not happen, that it's a guarantee, right? When we say that, it's not 100% guarantee. But when Jesus says something will not happen, and he's already got a track record at this point in the Gospels of proving that he's good on his word. They should have instantly walked home with a strut and with a confidence and with all fear and mourning and anxiety gone because Jesus just said Lazarus isn't going to die. He's going to raise him from the dead. Then Jesus waits two more days. Why? Because he knew the Jewish custom, right? He wanted to make sure that when he said, Lazarus, come forth, and he rose from the dead, that everyone there knew that he was the son of God. Everyone knew that he had the power for resurrection. This was a beautiful foreshadowing of what Jesus would eventually do that we're going to celebrate so well next month. But we're humans, right? And it's just not that simple. And so Jesus waits two days and then eventually Jesus shows up into the town and they hear that he's there. And so Martha runs to Jesus and she's like, master, if you would have just been here, my brother could have lived. And he's like, Martha, do you believe? And then she goes, she goes back and she says, uh, Jesus said he's going to live and Mary, he wants to see you. And as soon as she heard that, Mary starts sprinting to Jesus and she goes to Jesus and she says the same thing. She's just brokenhearted because Lazarus is now four days dead. It's official. The funeral has started and she runs to Jesus and said, Master, if you would have just been here. And again, he said, I'm telling you, this will not end in death if you'll just believe. And then Jesus starts to make his way to the funeral. And when he gets there, he does something that's incredibly significant. Now, Years ago, 20-some years ago, when I lived in Rockford, Illinois, and I was studying uh, ministry, and I was studying to be a pastor, and uh, uh, one of the first things I did in my first year of being here and studying was they made me uh, memorize. I hated it at the time because I'm dyslexic, and I'm not intellectually real strong. You guys could see by my writing on the board. Uh, they made me memorize 500 scriptures. Uh, 20 years later, it's one of the most beautiful things they could have ever done for me because you get the word of God in your heart. You start to, it's like, it's like, it's like bullets in the holster for the Holy Spirit when you got the word of God in you, right? But back then it was an academic exercise and having the problems I have with dyslexia, I just started researching the shortest scriptures in the, in the Bible so I could get as many as possible as short. And I came across the shortest scripture in the Bible. And back then this scripture 20 years ago was just an academic exercise for me because I'm like, I can memorize two words quick. That's one down, right? But, but 20 years you, you live some life, right? 
A lot of things happen in 20 years. You go through a lot of ups and downs because this life is a, a roller coaster. It's beauty and it's, it's brokenness. And I've seen some things in the last 20 years. I've experienced, like you, some things in the last 20 years. And that verse went from being an academic exercise when I first got introduced to it. And now I literally think it is my favorite verse in all of the New Testament because of the implications behind it, right? And I'm going to go ahead and put that up on the screen because when Jesus gets to the funeral, don't you think the, 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 the smartest, most kind thing he can do is raise Lazarus from the dead? It's already been four days. They've been mourning. They're all sitting what the Jews call sitting Shiva, which is this beautiful seven-day uh, time of mourning. I mean, they do funerals right, like when they do it. Like people from all over the town, family members, they all come and they like stand watch with the family. They would have all stood watch, different people at different times, for seven days and seven nights, and they don't talk very much. They just weep and they serve. You know what that's called? Empathy. They weep and they serve with the family. And, and in my, 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 my reading of the scripture, my first thought, if I would have been in that crowd that day, is like, Jesus, you said you're going to raise him from the dead. Why are you taking so much time? Jesus isn't in a hurry at all. And he says, okay, take me to the body. And when he gets to the actual funeral where they're sitting Shiva and he sees everyone bawling and crying and sad and mourning, Put that, put that back up. Shortest verse in the New Testament, possibly packed with the most implication of all of them. Jesus wept. Why is he crying? He's about to do the coolest thing anyone could do on planet Earth. Lazarus, get up, and he gets up. Why is he wasting their heart space and their heart emotion? It feels almost like on the surface, he's toying with them, sitting there weeping, when he could take their worst day they've ever had and turn it immediately into the best, coolest, most amazing day they've ever had. And yet Jesus, and we don't know for how long, but Jesus just takes his time sitting there weeping. And here's what we can know from the story. He's not weeping for Lazarus. He already knows the outcome with Lazarus. Dude just got a four day nap. Who doesn't want one of those, right? He's, he's doing better than all of them right there. He's looking around at what death does. And we know death was originally caused by sin. And he's just sitting there and he's seeing the mourning process and he's seeing what it's like to be a human and what it's like to go through what we go through. He knows exactly what it's like to experience death, y'all. He knows. He's a God who knows what it's like to be you. And he sits there knowing He's got this problem solved. And he does not bypass B because of how important it is to this thing called the human experience. You understand that? But we're not good at sitting in things. It's an art. You understand that? It's an art form. Learning how to sit in some, learning to let the difficult waves of life ride themselves out and surf them instead of fight against them. But man, it's a game changer when you start to learn that. I'm still a freshman when it comes to, to be. I, I got introduced to this from the therapist six, seven years ago. I'm still a freshman, y'all, I promise you that. But I am so wholeheartedly committed to being just so good at this because for, for all, I can't control most of the problems that happen in life. Some of them I can. Uh, I can't control the time frame about most solutions in life. A few you can, but most of them you can't. But you know what's in my control all the time if I so choose to be a person of empathy, to be a person who's unafraid to, to sit in things, 
with people who were hurting, to be unafraid of some of the darkness and brokenness that comes with, again, the human experience. That's why we're in this series in Lent. That's why we practice something that feels very, uh, it feels very like systematic, right? Lent, like there's rules to it and we're abstaining. And, and, and you know what we're really doing in Lent? We're embracing what Jesus went through in death so that we can learn to sit with people in death. And again, it's not just literal death. It's the death of anything anything people are going through. And then more importantly, knowing that we serve a God who whatever you're going through right now, weeps with you. It may not feel important to other people. You may not even be making light of how important it is. You might try to compartmentalize it or just put it away or numb it away. But, but the best thing Jesus said we can do when we're sitting in seasons of tension and seasons of, of death to different things, whatever they may be, the best thing Jesus said is just let me be with you. Even though I walk through the what? Darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me, God. You're with me. We have a, a term that Jesus was given in first century Judea for exactly this. It's this term, Emmanuel. You're, you're mostly all familiar with it, right? It, it only gets usually talked about at Christmas, but this is, this is the God we serve, the God with us, the God who sits Shiva at funerals. Yours right now, whatever you're going through. I think back to the book of Job. It was the first book I read as a new believer, and that's a mistake. Don't ever, if you're a new believer, don't go to the book of Job. I opened it up, and I thought it spelled job, and so I was like, I, I was 22, I needed a job, and so I was like, someone preacher told me the Bible's a man's handbook for life, and it tells you everything you need to know, and so I'm gonna read about a job. It's the worst book you can read as a new believer. It's like literally a guy uh, who, who's just the best life ever. Like just, just everything he touched turned to gold named Job. And then in, a, in an instant, in a few days, he loses everything. His friends, his family are all killed. He loses his business. He loses his wealth literally in a couple days. It's just something that no one human should have to endure that much, right? And for the first seven days in the book of Job, his friends come to sit Shiva with him for seven days and seven nights. And they even did this back in ancient Judean custom. They, uh, when they sat Shiva, the men would shave their heads bald. And it was this metaphor for naked we come into the world, naked we're gonna leave it. It was their way of, of, of empathizing, of saying, man, nothing makes you more vulnerable than death of any kind, right? Come on, we know, if you've lived at all, you know that feeling. Nothing makes you feel more vulnerable than death. And so they would literally shave their heads because what's more vulnerable, right, than just having to, to, to shave that head off? And they would just sit in the dust, metaphorically. They would literally sit in the dust. And for seven days and seven nights, his friends didn't say anything. They just sat there and wept with him. There was empathy. And then you know what they did as soon as the funeral was over? Back to what we crazy humans try to do. They started trying to wax eloquent about the theological and philosophical implications about why such a bad thing could happen to such a good person. Remember that great philosophical universal question around the sovereignty? How could bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to, to bad people? And we always quietly kind of wonder that in our hearts. As soon as they went from empathy to trying to theologically figure out the sovereign ways of God, it all starts going bad. They start fighting as friends. They start accusing each other. Job's wife comes in. You talk about needing marriage therapy. She comes in and literally looks at Job and says, curse God and die. Job's trying to hold on to his faith in the midst of tragedy. She's just like, I picture from Jersey with a cigarette and coffee, just like, 
Job curse God and die. Like, right? Like she's angry. I don't know. Sorry. I'm weird. Sorry. That's weird. Sorry. But I just picture just angry and bitter. Like, wouldn't you be too if you just lost everything and everyone? <laughs> it, they, the, his friends were at their absolute best when they just sat there silently and just followed the wave with Job and said, you want to cry right now? Let's cry. You want to be sad right now? I'm going to be sad with you. You want to memorialize them? Let's talk about some memories. What do you need, Job? I'm here with you. And I'm just here to sit in the dust, shave my head and cry with you. Do you understand? We serve the God who came to earth in physical form and sits in the dust with us and gets as vulnerable as we have to be. I use this verse in almost every sermon I do with you guys because it's so important to me. We do not have, Hebrews 4 says, a, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us because he has gone through everything we've gone through yet was without sin. Therefore, we can what? Approach the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. And I would add this, mercy in our time of mourning. You have a high priest right now that sympathizes with you, whether you think you deserve it or not. Deserving it's not even the point because some of your mourning has been because of self-inflicted decisions, right? I know some of my mourning in this life has been because of my own bad decisions. And can I tell you that the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God is not predicated upon you deserving it or not deserving it. Jesus will sit with you when you're reaping what you've sown from your own bad decisions and you're mourning those bad decisions. Jesus won't sit there and make you pay. He paid on the cross so he could sit there with you and weep instead of sit there with you and accuse. It's the enemy that's accusing you. It's not our savior. That's not his character. That's not his heart. That's not his voice. Jesus said this, more sitting, less solving, because here's what I know about Jesus. He solved the problem of human sin in three days, but he sat with us in it for 33 years. And he does nothing arbitrarily, right? So let's think about this. Three days, he could solve a problem. Easy. Jesus is like solutions. Easy peasy. I got this. In my sleep, I got this. I'll do that in three days. And one of the days I'm just going to sit in the grave so we can have our Jewish period. So when I raise from the dead, you'll know that I was really dead so that you know that I conquered death. So I got your solution, but you know what I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on planet earth doing? Just filling it. See, if I'm Jesus, thank goodness I'm not. I'm a typical male, right? So you know what I do? Knowing that the, the writer of Hebrews said that you can't have forgiveness of sins without the shedding of innocent blood. And so Jesus comes down to shed innocent blood. You know what I do if I'm Jesus? I get off that throne. I'm not happy about it. I definitely don't come into the womb of a girl. I just come down as a man already. I tick off Pilate. I tick off Caesar as quick as possible. I tick off Caiaphas, the high priest, as quick as possible so that they could put me on the cross. I get on the cross day two while I'm here. Day three, I stay in the grave. Day four, I'm resurrected. I stick around a fifth day so I can tell the disciples how to run the church and make sure people see me as an eyewitness to know that I really was who I was. And then on day six, I'm right back up on my throne in perpetual peace and shalom. Get me out of that crazy world. Those people are crazy, right? When I have heaven, and my throne and perfect shalom. I'm going to subject myself to this madness for 33 and a half years. Why though? All the story of God is, is about relationship. He created us for one thing, relationship. The chief currency of relationship is trust. Who cares about a great miracle, even resurrection, if you don't trust the one who raised from the dead? 
So, well, well, we love miracles and we get enamored with miracles and we want to see God do these quick miracles where he breaks the laws of science. Do you know what really matters to Jesus? And, and he doesn't have to do this. He chooses to do this. He wanted to earn our trust so that when he went to the cross and then he raised from the dead, we would put our faith in him. We would put our belief in him. And so he sits with us for 33 years and solves it in three days. And this is Jesus going, listen, I'm going to uh, not solve all of your problems in the time frame you'd like. Can I get an amen from somebody going through something right now? I'm going through some things right now. And it's not even close to the time frame that I draw up that God's acting. But as I'm maturing and as I'm trying to grow in my faith, I've just made my peace with this fact for a city that God will do what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. That's above my pay grade. But where my faith lands is that in the meantime, he will sit with me, Shiva. And he will weep with me. And he will weep with you. That's how much he cares about you. And again, it's not predicated upon you deserving it or earning it or being a good enough or following the Lent rules good enough or any of that stuff. He will do it because you are his son and you are his daughter and you bear his image. I'll end with this verse. I need to stop. I'm preaching myself happy right now because I needed this message for me this week. I needed it for me. Psalms 56, eight, tell me we don't serve an awesome God. Listen to the character trait of God. David writes, God, you keep track of all my sorrows. Listen to this. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Every tear you cry matters to God. And you're gonna stand before him in his presence face to face someday. And for all the different things, whatever it's gonna be like that we go through when we meet with Jesus face to face finally, one of the coolest moments is when he's got a bottle and every tear that's ever come out of those eyes of yours, because you know what tears are, right? They're just heart toxins. Crying is such a gift from God. You understand that? And again, man, I'm speaking to us for a minute. It's not something that gets rewarded in our culture, and I hate that. It's a sign of weakness in our culture. To which I say, what? You're gonna tell my savior who got nailed to a cross and crown of thorns on his head and didn't fight? You're gonna call him weak and unmasculine and he takes time when he's gonna do the coolest miracle ever, he stops and takes time to weep? Crying's a powerful thing, y'all. It, it is a tiny little drops of water, but a huge story that's coming out in that little drop every time you cry. That's why you feel lighter when you are done crying. This is why I no longer fight. I'm German. I grew up German, right? We got all these ethnic stereotypes we give each other. I'll have some fun with that someday in the intro of a sermon, but I'm German. We don't, we're not, we don't cry, right? We just write in ledgers and business books and try and make what right, right? Like we, we don't have emotions. We're stoic, right? And as I'm getting older, I'm just like looking forward to a good cry. And I, as a man, don't apologize for that. I don't feel weak because of that. I don't feel unmasculine because of that. I feel like my savior. He weeps with those who weep. Some of you, you know what the greatest thing you could do right now is you just need a good cry and to unapologetically be unafraid of that experience. Because every tear you cry someday, Jesus is going to go, I knew exactly what you were going through. I knew what it was like to be you. And guess what? Although you couldn't see to heaven, I weep with you. 
The same way I rejoice with you when things are going well, I weep with you. That's how cared for you are today. So what if today in week three of Lent, what we learn about death is simply this. Quit trying to control the time frame of your healing, the time frame of your mourning. Quit trying to make sense of something that's senseless. Death is senseless. Not gonna make sense of it on this side of the grave. It's senseless. I don't get it. But what we can do is say, God, would you just be with me right now, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace? And we're just gonna do that in this last song. We're gonna sing about the faithfulness of God, which is probably the best thing you can do when you're mourning. <laughs> Doesn't that sound ironic and counterintuitive? It's one of the best things you can do. And I just did my best for the last few minutes to teach on the faithfulness of God. Just, just one more attribute of how good God is. Just faithful. Just faithful. We're going to sing about his goodness. And in that, if you will just do this, there's, I'm a horrible singer. I'm going to sing my little heart out. But no one will hear it because we play loud music, right? Like no one's going to hear it anyways. But, but it doesn't matter about pitch or noise. You know what matters? A heart that's authentic before God. And I just believe that when we start truly, truly focusing and singing about the faithfulness of God, those of you who walked in here today in any form or fashion that are mourning, God is going to give you a breakthrough. He's going to give you a lightness to your soul. Some of you, he's going to give you the gift of tears as we start to sing. So I'm asking as I pray and wrap this up that we wouldn't just be thinking about what's for lunch and we wouldn't be thinking about the game, Pete, but we would be thinking about, I'm just kidding. We would be thinking about what do you need from God right now? He's there for you. He's there to weep with you. He's there to sit with you. He's there to listen to you. He's just caring for you. And you can just rest in his presence. And so Jesus, in these next few minutes that we have together, as we sing about the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God, Holy Spirit, would you just start to do heart work on us? Would you sit, Shiva, with us in this moment, God, whatever people are going through, some people are literally right now hurting because of a real death they just experienced in their family or their friends. And I just pray that this would be a moment of healing and a moment of release and a, mo a reminder, God, that you're with us. Some of us are grieving big dreams that seem impossible and long gone. God cares about that, guys. God cares about that deeply. Some of you are grieving a, a loss of a marriage, a loss of, of a friend. God cares deeply about that. Will you let him minister to you in these next few minutes? So Jesus, just pour out your spirit. Pour out your spirit in these next few minutes. We give this time over to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Chad Brugman with part three of the series titled Less Is More. Thanks for listening.